Burroughs and uh, Nick Robinson, but from Sunshot on the fan side of network, Jacob LaRiviere, Daniel Bruce, and Derek Lee all joining us. We have tons to cover today, and we're super excited to get into this segment. But before we do, please remember to download both the Barn Burner and Zingo TV app available on both iOS and Android devices. Zingo TV is also available on Chromecast, Amazon Fire, and Fire TV Sticks, Roku Sticks, also on all smart TVs 2016 and forward. Uh, everyone who's on the panel tonight, uh, welcome and thank you so much for being here. So we're going to start uh, before we get into like the, the news we have. Um, just about yourselves, how long you've been watching the Senators. Uh, Jacob, I want to start with you. What got you into hockey and what got you into being a Sense fan in the first place? Well, for me, I was as a kid uh, living in a, in a, in a, in a uh, smaller town with, with a lot of hockey presence. I obviously got the uh, early start really watching hockey, and um, and uh, uh, there's a there's a guy who played for the local junior team who also went to my school because my school was from kindergarten to grade twelve, and. Um, the fact that I that I knew someone on like someone who went to my school on that team really sold it for me. And fun fact, he's actually now playing in the NHL. Matthew Pecker for the Ottawa Senators. He's a nice. that guy right there. But yeah, he uh, that got me started in the hockey. I don't really have much of a hockey family, but it's I've always really been in hockey. Straight. Awesome, up. awesome. Matthew Pecker, the Habs legend himself. Uh, Daniel, for you, what got you into uh, being a Sense fan and, and writing as well? What got you into that aspect of it? Um, I was born in Ottawa, so my parents cheered for the Sens, so I felt like I had to. I went to games when I was young. And then, uh, funny enough, I moved to Newfoundland when I was seven years old. I've just I've just kept being a Sens fan. And for, for writing, uh, I just followed uh, – I read a lot of blogs, read a lot of blogs and articles and stuff, and I just piqued an interest, and then I decided to join Sens Shot. And, yeah, I don't know, I've enjoyed everything since, and that's what I sort of want to do. And Derek, last one here. Uh, what got you into writing, and, and how did you become a Sense fan? Uh, yeah, with the uh, the writing gig, it was uh, just offered to me not really that long ago, I guess, uh, early summer. Um, I was at home kind of bored thanks to uh, COVID, working from home. Uh, so I was on Twitter probably a little extra, uh, a little bit more than I normally am. So uh, so that's how I kind of kick-started the writing with Sendshot. It was uh, just a, a perfect avenue there. Um, I've been a Senators fan since I was a little kid, like since I was six or seven years old. Uh, my family lived in Ottawa. So uh, I started out as a Leaf fan, actually, and very early on switched over to, uh, to Ottawa. Yeah, you better ditch that quick. We don't like the Leafs on the show. We, uh, right. <laughs> we, we bully them quite a bit. Um, all right. Uh, Luke's a Canucks fan and I'm a Habs fan. So we are a little bit out of place. And for the first time ever, I think on Take the Take, we are outnumbered by um opposing fans anyway it's let's very nice very nice here to have the numbers <laughs> advantage for once it's great. yeah um before we get into the send specific stuff for those who are tuning in we're, we're gonna do this segment actually going on uh when the new season starts to just talk about each specific team go in depth on their draft picks their trades their free agency and all that stuff but before we do um there's some general hockey news that that's still going on and that's uh, about Mitchell Miller and Luke will get your thoughts initially. So he's been cut from the university of North Dakota, their hockey, their hockey uh, program. And this is a good thing. And I think we'd all agree. It's a good thing, but North Dakota, just like the NHL teams, they knew about it. And once there was sort of this uh, outrage online, that's when they made their decision, just like Arizona did yesterday to renounce their pick. What do you think of this? Is this a good thing or is it just sort of caving to what everyone else, everyone else's outrage? Well, like, I know what you mean by calling it a good thing. I don't like, I, I don't like to say this is a good thing. Like not to say um, that's what you meant, but again, like we talked about yesterday, the whole situation in general is just, 
it's just terrible. So many incredibly unfortunate um, events and the way people and the way he has handled it. Uh, and I, I think, I think we kind of, I, what we said yesterday still stands, you know, um, a position he's in and not really showing any, any signs of remorse towards the appropriate parties. Uh, I, I do think, yeah, I, and like you said, I do think this is, um, this is the right call. So it's, uh, it's just another, another step in a, in a terrible story. Um, and I, I, I don't know, like, it's, it's really unfortunate to say because you, you don't like to see any of this that has happened, but um, everything that's come of it, I, I think is good until, until, you know, um, his side of things kind of, kind of turns it around if, if, and when he chooses to do that. I, I think this speaks to a bigger issue within hockey culture. And we've talked endlessly about hockey culture and hockey is such an unbelievable and beautiful sport, but there are so many issues within. And the fact that they knew about this uh, and the NHL teams knew about this, it's almost like they wanted to keep it quiet. And it's only until they realized other people found out that people started speaking out. It's the same thing with the, with the Dan Carcillo lawsuit. Um, what needs to change? And, and I'll design this question towards uh, Jacob here. What do you think needs to change in hockey's culture and hockey as a sport? So this stuff isn't hidden and it's not something that we have to sort of push under the rug and something that we can actually overcome. Cause like we've said, hockey is an amazing sport, but this stuff seems to happen so consistently. What do you think about that? I think that it's uh, that that, that um, look, there, look, there's there's a lot of things really. It's, it's it's some things are can be seen as just joking around, playing around, but some things are crossing the line. And I think what uh, what uh, Mitch Miller did for what his years really crossed the line. Like there's joking around, and there's being a straight up bully, and, and being a bully is just not okay in my opinion, and probably in a lot of people's opinions. It's just, it's a step too far, and I feel. Um, um, when it comes to drafting, I feel that uh, t- uh, teams have to really do their due diligence and actually do ba- more of a background check. Because sure, hockey, like you want you want to make your team as best as you can, but that it's not not just on ice product; it's also off ice. What your what your uh, what your roster shows off the ice can really reflect what it does on the ice. And if you have a guy who just doesn't want to uh, include everybody and uh, who's not a very a, um, an inclusive person and uh, can cross that line, like I mentioned, it's uh, you really got to do your homework when it comes to that. Uh, Daniel, your thoughts, what, what can we do? Not only as people in hockey, because I think we look towards hockey players to change, but hockey players aren't going to change unless there's sort of not, I guess I, I'll say pressure because a lot of the stuff that we've seen changed doesn't happen unless there is pressure, but uh, media members, uh, writers, what can people do as a whole to make sure this kind of stuff doesn't happen? Cause it doesn't happen to the same extent that we've seen in soccer or baseball or, or basketball. What do you think? Um, I think we just, uh, well, basically we need to make it more public, like the Miller thing. Like we, like that can't be happening obviously. And, uh, I think the main root of it is from like minor hockey and stuff. That's where it all starts. Uh, coaches, coaches need to go through a program with their, with their players and tell them what to like, what are the not to do? Cause I mean, when you join hockey, you're eight, like nine, and you grow up with like a group of guys or girls. And then there's a lot of stuff culture like that happens yeah and uh, i grew up playing modern hockey and i can't say like similar stuff happened but uh there were some there were some worrying stuff that worrying traits that were brought on by a couple players so like i don't know just enforce a program or something with the players yep and uh i'll for you derek same thing uh what do you think we can do is it on the players is it up to the because what what we've been saying on this show is it you know Nick, Luke, and I have been outspoken on these issues, but 
we're not prominent media figures or yet, or hopefully we will be, but it's, it's the ones like Bob McKenzie. It's the ones like Elliot Friedman, the the big names who still aren't really as outspoken about it. And you look at something like the Skip Bayless thing, uh, what he said, other media members for major networks, ESPN spoke out about that, but media members in hockey aren't speaking out about this sort of blatant abuse. So I want to, I want to know what you think we can do as media members uh, to change that. Yeah, we need to continue those conversations, as you said. Um, I actually had the pleasure of talking to Ian Mendez about this two days ago on uh, the Sens Hour podcast. Um, and I really liked uh, some of the things that he said and some of the ideas that he had um, just about addressing hockey culture as a whole. And it, you know, it spiraled, spiraled from the uh, Mitchell Miller conversation. Um, and it was just about implementing trainings in the grassroots, uh, grassroots level of uh, hockey and getting some of those trainings in there. But I think, you know, some of this stuff falls on the parents too. I, I come at it from a mental health perspective. Um, and I'm not sure if you guys are aware, but I try to implement mental health into my writing as well. Uh, so it's always uh, something that I'm aiming to do just to get people um, getting more comfortable with some of these conversations um, and getting rid of, you know, your grandfather's thoughts on, on some of these topics. So, uh, so that's my perspective. I think, I think that's a great point. Something we haven't talked about enough, I think is mental health and sport. And that's something we want to continue to do moving forward. Um, and I think a lot of times hockey players, they're just little kids. They're so innocent, but they get to a point now when you get to the rep level, you get to double A AA and triple A where, you start to see that culture and a lot of it does come from parents. I've been around a lot of hockey in my life and I see how hockey parents can be, and I'm not trying to paint them all with the same brush, but it can be pretty toxic. Um, and it's not to the same extent as we've seen with um, soccer, baseball, basketball. So um, let's move on from all that stuff and let's get into the reason why you guys are here. And that is to talk about the senators. Uh, I'm going to hand this over to the resident sense fan in Nick here, because he prepared some questions for you guys and hopefully we can start talking about the sense. Yeah. So basically I, I'm sure everybody's seen it now. There have been so many split opinions on the Senators offseason so far. Some people saying they had a great offseason. Pierre Dorian's been the general manager of the offseason. Some people are saying maybe those more analytically inclined that this is a disaster and, you know, the world is ending, all that about the Senators. There's just basically no common ground here. So I guess that's what we're going to try and get. We're going to try and get to all the nitty gritty details of the Senators offseason while you guys are on here today. And that's why we brought you on. Uh, I'm going to start with the 2020 draft, and obviously everybody knows that was probably one of the biggest days in Ottawa Senators history, at least in recent memory, just given the implications it could have on next year and the next 10 years of the Ottawa Senators, finally dragging them out of the basement, we hope. But I guess we'll start with the two guys that they selected at third and fifth overall, the two most talked about players in Ottawa right now. It's Tim Stutzla and Jake Sanderson. I guess I'll start with Derek. You were one of the people that took a lot of heat on Twitter very early on in the draft talk about you saying that the Senators were likely going to take Jake Sanderson because of their ties to North Dakota. Uh, just give me your thoughts on Tim Stutzla and Jake Sanderson. Yeah, uh, I'll start with, uh, with Timmy. Um, I think, you know, that was an easy pick. Um, you just take the next player that, uh, that LA didn't select there. Um, and we're going to get a great player at number three, regardless if it was Quentin Byfield or Tim Stutzla. Um, we ended up getting the German. Stutzla is a flashy player. Um, he's an exciting player. Uh, I don't think the analytical community loved him maybe as much as some other players and even some players that were selected behind him. 
uh, and fair enough. There's uh, some parts to his game that uh, that don't uh, jive well with the analytical community. Um, but I think uh, Timmy Stutzla is a player that's going to be loved in Ottawa. I don't think there's any question there. He's a player that's going to take people out of their seats. Um, and he's a player that they needed to drive the offense because they don't have a creative player like that. Uh, I do think he has a good chance to make the NHL this year if the contract stuff gets sorted out. Um, as for Jake Sanderson, um, that one, as you said, I took a lot of heat for on Twitter, suggesting that uh, Ottawa was going to take Sanderson the whole time. Um, I think uh, I really tried to read in, in between the lines and listen to you know the top people that are out there that have ties within the team, like Haley Salvian. Um, and I think she was subtly hinting at this the entire time. If we were able to kind of see past our own kind of wants and wishes at number five. Um, so with Jake Sanderson, um, I don't mind the pick personally. Um, did we pass up some talent to take Sanderson? Yeah, <laughs> there's no question. But, uh, but I like Jake Sanderson. I think, I think he has an, a higher offensive ceiling than people give him credit for. Um, but I don't think that's really going to be his bread and butter in the NHL. He's, he's going to be a very sound defenseman. Um, and a guy that, uh, quite frankly, the Ottawa system doesn't really have on their, their decor right now. Um, so it adds that versatility to their decor. And uh, I have no problem with either pick. Now, with regards to Tim Stutzla, I know we've got specifically two people here that sort of saw him a lot differently. I know, Patrick, you had him ranked below guys like Lucas Raymond in your final draft rankings. And Daniel, I believe you had him all the way up at number two, based on what you were writing for Sunshot. I'll start with you, Daniel. Why did you have Tim Stutzla at number two? And, you know, do you think he was the second best player in this draft? Is that what Ottawa got at number three? Uh, yeah, I believe so. Um, first off with Tim, he's just electric whenever he's on the ice. Uh, his acceleration and agility when he's either skating with the puck or without it is next level. He was, I think, in my opinion, he was the best skater in the draft. Uh, and all of the NHL modern day game is about his speed. So that gave him a big bonus in my book. And his skill is just like filthy. He, his hands, passing, vision, and he has a really good shot, which is really underrated. And I know Pierre Dorian hinted in a media availability he had a couple of weeks ago that he thinks that he has a great shot and he just doesn't use it enough. So I'd be interested to see um, how much more productive he can be maybe this year in Germany if he ends up playing or in Ottawa how much if he can use his shot more and see how much he can produce, because I believe there's a lot of untapped potential there. Now, Patrick, you definitely had somebody like Lucas Raymond ahead of him. I think you had a couple other people ahead of Tim Stutzel. I think where he rank on your list, I think he was fifth or sixth. He, uh, Tim Stutzel was uh, fifth for me. I had uh, Lafreniere or Byfield one, Lafreniere two, uh, Raymond three, Rossi four, Stutzel five. And I think for me, I thought Raymond was close, a lot closer to two than he was to three. And, for me, he was always my lock at three because I was so high on Quinton Byfield. But for me, I think Ottawa was in a really good position to take Lucas Raymond. And I feel like a lot of the dislike for Lucas Raymond was because he wasn't a consensus top three pick for a lot of people. And I guess for me, what gives Lucas Raymond the edge over someone like Tim Stutzel is the hockey sense. I think while uh, Stutzel might have more uh, flashy skill and maybe it might look a little bit more offensive, I think all around uh, Raymond plays a more well-rounded game. And we're seeing it now that a lot of people thought he was an off the board pick. Now he's starting to really produce him for Lunda. He's scoring amazing goals and he, he's showing that he can be really dominant 
uh, at both ends of the ice, both offensively and defensively with his hands. But that doesn't mean that Tim Stutzel is a bad pick or a bad player. That's just my personal uh, prospect preference. As far as Jake Sanderson goes, just to touch on that real quick, um, he's someone that the dislike seemed a little bit excessive for me uh, early on in June when rankings were starting to become a little bit more prominent. Um, no, he's not an offensive dynamo like what some people think Jamie Drysdale is, but he's not that bad defensively or offensively. I don't think he has no upside. I think there's still some potential there for him to put the puck in the net and generate some points. And if you're looking at for Jake Sanderson to be an offensive player, you're not going to get that, but that's not what you need when you have someone like Thomas Shabbat, Eric Branstrom coming in. Uh, he's just a really solid second, not a secondary piece, but someone who can sort of alleviate the stress from the top pairing minutes that Shabbat will get. Now, Jacob, the Senators got a lot of heat at some points for these two picks that they made. Is that fair or should the duty be for Senators fans to step up and support these two players no matter what? I feel for sure there is some warrant for some uh, for some um, um, for some heated discussions there for sure, because uh, Jake Sanderson has been up and down uh, the uh, the uh, the draft list for multiple people I've noticed. But it's honestly I find it's. Um, the Sens know what they're doing. They have assembled a team that really know what they're doing. And of course, there's going to be some um, some picks that uh, dis- that create more discussion than others. But I think that um, it's definitely um, something that a lot of people have had differentiating opinions on. And um, yeah, I feel um, that it, there has been a lot of a differentiating opinion, and it's, it is definitely a, a reasonable reasonable doubt that people have in certain players and. Um, I think that the Senators obviously know what they're doing at the end of the day, and uh, we'll see what happens. Luke, maybe I'll look to you on this one then, because you obviously watch a lot of Vancouver Canucks hockey and seeing the way that Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes have transformed the team, obviously having that dynamic offensive player up front and a big force on the back end. Probably Jake Sanderson doesn't have that offensive upside that Quinn Hughes has, but do you think just having watched the Canucks and seeing how two positional players like that have elevated the team. Do you think that that's probably the idea that the senators went for, and this could be an advantage to them? Well, I I don't think in any way it could necessarily be a bad thing. Like when you, when you, and I'll use Hughes as the example here, because I think that's most relatable having a, having an awesome puck moving defenseman like Quinn Hughes cannot be a bad thing, but he's not going to get it done for them, right? Like just him alone. And and that's been apparent all year long. Quinn Hughes is a phenomenal player, um, but he he's not a shutdown defenseman. Uh, like he's, you know, you, you you're not just gonna you're not just gonna get there with uh, with Quinn Hughes with a whole bunch of Quinn Hughes on your back end. Although that'd be pretty cool. Um, you, you need you need a and I'll I'll say it. You need a Chris Tanev, right? You need you need some of those guys. So I don't think you can say a pick like this is necessarily a bad thing. I think and and I. I think any management team would understand this. Once you have that pick, you need to, you need to see the kind of play he brings and then build maybe around him, build with him. So, so yeah, like I don't, I wouldn't see any, any issue with it as long as the, the five other defense around him are built appropriately and filling in holes where maybe said defenseman can't, can't get there. All right. Well, just based on those two players, obviously prospects are not my bread and butter. So I really look into some of the other guys in here for this, but it's clear that from this draft that the senators drafting philosophy, isn't something that's exactly transparent because they're sort of all over the place with everything, whether that's up to just Pierre Dorian and Trent Mann and what they want to do with the team, 
or whether that's due to Eugene Melnick upstairs and budget constraints and what that may cause for the team. The Senators don't seem, at least to me, to have a clear drafting philosophy. And, you know, we look at some of the players that they may have potentially reached on that a lot of people have pointed out, a lot of prominent scouts have pointed out. You know, people said Jake Sanderson was a reach at five. Ridley Grigg seemed like a reach at 28 to a lot of people. Tyler Clavin was another one that people were very, very divided on at number 44. And obviously Ottawa traded up to take Tyler Clavin. Uh, Daniel, I know you definitely had some thoughts on him uh, as a defenseman. Again, are the Senators doing the right thing when they draft a guy like him? Uh, probably that doesn't have a high ceiling, but is a more projectable NHL type player. Uh, that's tough to say. I, I, I wasn't a fan because I thought with all the, the capital of picks they had, they had to take more risks. I guess Cleveland could be thought of as a risk because I don't think he's going to be like very good. <laughs> so to risk, but I don't think it was a good move. No, especially trading up too. If they took him at like 61 or something, I'd be like, okay, like sure. So yeah, their draft philosophy is sort of all over the map, but they're really consistent in getting people who are tough to play against. And especially with the Gabranson trade and the, and Watson, it makes that seem like that might be a theme because Greg's also really tough to play against. I don't know if that's the best plan because skill wins in this NHL. So I would have liked to them go definitely to go somewhere else or pick one of the players that the Leafs did at like 50 at like wherever their picks were. Yeah. So I don't know. I think they're, they're th overthinking it too much with being tough to play against and not thinking about how skill could make you tough to play against. Yeah. And that's definitely a fair point and something that the senators have drawn a lot of criticism for uh, Derek. I'll put, point this next one to you you know if you look at the high volume of picks ottawa currently has uh coming from the western hockey league the qmjhl uh finland and the united states especially from the university of north dakota and we can sit here and joke about how many und guys they're taking but you know is there something wrong here with what the senators are doing or do you think this is just purely due to financial constraints uh, yeah, I think uh, probably the latter there. Um, I listened to, uh, I believe it was Rachel Dory yesterday. I want to say it was yesterday on the Locked On Senators podcast, uh, another one of my daily listens. Um, and she comes at it from a, a real analytical standpoint, but uh, she made some really good points uh, in that due to the financial constraints, um, Ottawa is really limited in their scouting. And, um, you know, basically the players that they picked have a lot to do with just the players that they were able to see because they weren't able to see some of these other maybe higher end players. So um, do I think they're limited by financial constraints? I think we're fooling ourselves if we don't think they are. Yeah. And you know, it's definitely disappointing when you look at that overall, because, you know, I think any GM would have bent over backwards to have the amount of pick capital that Ottawa had in this draft and what an opportunity it presented. But, you know, I, I at least for me, when you look at it, the amount of, safe picks that they took in this draft and maybe the amount of overagers they took sometimes it comes across to me as disappointing and it's that's a tough thing to say when you get two high-end players like tim stutzla and jake sanderson but jacob i'll say this to you do you think this draft was disappointing at all for senators did you expect better i think the draft was definitely surprising i don't think it was a disappointment because we did get a lot of uh, great talent in Timmy Stutzla, Jake Sanderson, even Ridley Craig, if you want to throw that in there. Like, I think they're definitely guys who will contribute to the uh, to the lineup. And another thing is, it's not just the guys who drafted, the guys who acquired in trades or free agency. Like, I, I'm, I'm not going to mention free agency because we're talking about the draft, but 
draft wise, we acquired Matt Murray for a second round pick. And uh, sure, we could have used that second round pick to draft someone else, but we definitely got players to improve our team for the now and for the future. I feel that is uh, definitely a great, um, a great uh, add, add to our team. Patrick, being more of just a scout for yourself and, you know, maybe that unbiased view in Ottawa, do you think that they should have rolled the dice more? And does this draft come across to you, an outsider, as a disappointment? It'd be hard to label it a disappointment disappoint when you do get Tim Stutzel and Jake Sanderson. Um, <clears throat> it's the later picks that seem kind of questionable. Um, Ridley Gregg at 28. I mean, someone like Maverick Bork, a center who I think is going to be really strong, at least a top six center in the league who Dallas was able to snag uh, at the 30th spot. That would have been a great pick for Ottawa. But again, the problem when we contrast picks is it it's not that the player itself is bad. I don't think Tyler Cleveland is a bad hockey player. I don't think Ridley Gregg is a bad hockey player, but it's where they were picked. Someone like Ridley Gregg probably could have been picked down the line. And if we're talking specifically about Gregg, um, I like Ridley Gregg and I was able to watch a couple of his games in the WHL. Uh, he reminds me a lot of Brendan Gallagher in a lot of ways, really, really tenacious hockey player, great defensively. But the questions with him is about his translatable offense. You know, he did very well point wise, but that's the WHL and it's a lot harder to translate that when you're really small. Uh, someone like Tyler Clavin, if I can speak to, look, that's a big brain move from Kyle Dubas. And the fact that he was able to draft someone like Topi Nimala shows the difference in mindset. I think what it comes down to for Toronto and specifically Pierre Dorian is mindset. And I do think it is somewhat similar to Montreal's is they like mean players who are hard to play against. And while Topi Nimala is more high risk or uh, yeah, a high risk, high reward player, Tyler Cleveland is not. And I kind of feel for Tyler Cleveland because I feel like a lot of the dislike for his game seemed exaggerated. And I think a lot of that comes because the U S national team development program is so stacked. Um, no, Tyler Cleveland is not an elite offensive force, but I really think he is going to be pretty strong defensively. Um, for someone who's 6'4", he skates very well. I think he has an underrated offensive upside to him. He's a good passer. He's a very low-risk player. And whether or not you take that at 44 is definitely up for debate. I don't think you do. Um, I think he, you probably could have got him in the third or fourth round, but Cleveland's still a good player. Uh, Greg, I think, will be a solid player. It's just a question of mindset, and I think that's where Pierre Dorian and Ottawa's scouting staff kind of fall short. All right, so Daniel, I'll throw this back to you now. We just recently at Sunshot, we're all talking about ranking the prospects inside Ottawa's system currently. So given the fact that they've now added a blue chipper in Tim Stutzla and I guess a bubble blue chipper uh, in Jake Sanderson, depends where you fall with him, uh, where do they fit in now in terms of the top prospects in Ottawa's organization? How do they stack up to guys like uh, that played in Belleville last year and you know that are closer to the NHL? Um, Stutzla immediately jumps to number one. I think that's pretty, uh, pretty agreed upon. Uh, for number two, I, I have Branstrom. Uh, I think Branstrom's underrated by a lot of fans because he was saddled next to friggin' Ron Hainsey last year. <laughs> so, I mean, on a team like Ottawa, you weren't going to produce in that situation anyways. And he didn't get as much power play time as I would have wanted either. So I think it was more situation and he was good in Belleville. So I think he's number two because of his offensive upside. And three is Sanderson. I, I actually like Sanderson a lot. I think he's going to be a really good two-way defenseman for Ottawa, most likely on their second pairing. Uh, the thing that stands out about Sanderson is his transition game. He can get from one end of the ice to the other in, like, no time, just smooth, making like playing at his own pace. And uh, I think his offensive upside is fine. He'll be, like, a 40-plus point guy. But, yeah, he goes in at number three ahead of, like, guys like Drake Baderson and Josh Norris. 
Where and uh, just for a joke, how long before Roby Yarvente starts to move into that top five, given his start <laughs> to the season in Finland? Uh, we'll see. Um, after 20 games, we'll see, and I'll give, give you an answer. All right, that's good. Um, Derek, you wrote about this the other day. Now, we look at Ottawa's system now. Adding another center in Ridley Grieg uh, only complicates the mix down the middle for Ottawa. You know, there's not a lot of high-end centermen in their pipeline, but there is a lot of two, three guys. Given the amount of centermen that Ottawa already have in the system and, you know, the fact that they're continuing to add more in the draft, does this mean anything for Logan Brown specifically? Uh, Yeah, Logan Brown... Um, I'm shocked we're still talking about Logan Brown right now. Um, honestly, I think I, I personally like Logan Brown. I actually have Logan Brown ranked ahead of Josh Norris, uh, personally, uh, still on the prospect ranking, uh, which is a bit of a hot take, but, um, I'm, I'm quite frankly surprised that Ottawa hasn't moved Logan Brown yet. Um, and we're not through the off season yet. Yeah, no, it's definitely something that could happen. You know, it seems, especially with the amount of injuries that he's had over the past couple of years, it definitely has stalled his development in some way because, you know, an 11th overall pick we're talking about here in Logan Brown, I think we were all hoping that by now in his career, he would be at least a top six uh, figure in Ottawa's lineup. So there is still time in the offseason, like you said, but uh, Logan Brown is definitely going to be one to watch, especially um, with the season coming soon hopefully. So we're going to move now into some of the other off-season moves that the Senators made now away from the draft. That goes into all their trades, their signings that they've brought into the organization, signings that they've made internally to keep guys. Uh, we're going to start with the big fish, Evgeny Dadanov, brought in from the Florida Panthers. He's probably their main acquisition this off-season, and I think it came as a surprise to a lot of us. Jacob, I'll start with you. What was your immediate reaction to Evgeny Dadanov signing and you know, are you excited to see him in an Ottawa Senators jersey next year? To be quite honest, but when I found out the uh, the news, I was just laying around scrolling. I got so excited. Like, I, it's, it was it was an exciting signing for sure, and it was very, very unexpected for me. I feel like um, uh, he really helps he, – bringing him in really helps contribute to rebuild in multiple ways. Sure, in rebuilds, you have to trade away assets to get assets back, but also you don't want to be just – lifeless on the ice you want to have a sort of product to, to, to bring on the ice to help uh, merge prospects from being prospects to full-time nhl players and i think that Evgeny Dadanov really does that he's a great player who can help for now and he can be a part of this team for a while and a couple of years down the road if we need to train him for assets we can always trade him for assets for sure and daniel does you know adding another winger to the organization does that maybe stunt the development of anybody or does the term sort of forgive that uh, I don't think it stunts the development of everybody. I think if anything, it, it helps with their development. Having a guy like Dadnoff who can produce offense on the top line and maybe sliding along with like Alex Formanton, uh, Josh Norris. He can even help Brady Kachuk because could they get Kachuk on the left wing and Dadnoff on the right wing? Like you look now at Kachuk and uh, yeah, basically Kachuk has nobody like that's going to produce offense like up front. Like who is there? I hope Drake Baderson comes and can do that this season but who knows having a veteran guy who we know that can produce offense and help prospects come along uh there's no complaints about that i think it's a great signing 
All right. And then another one that they made and very recently was bringing in Alex Galchenyuk on a one-year deal, just over a million dollars. And that seems like a very low risk, high reward one. Luke, I know when we did our free agency show a couple of weeks ago, you were very complimentative of teams that were going for the low risk, high reward guys. Does this make a lot of sense for Ottawa to bring in a guy like Alex Galchenyuk for an outsider view? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we like I talked about Galchenyuk specifically yesterday. I think that's a that's a no brainer move. Extremely low risk, a pretty high reward. Like if, if he can get back to even close to to where he can be for a million dollars, that's I think that's great. But yeah, on a on a broader scale, it's the it's the the Ottawa's, the Buffaloes, right? And you've seen a lot of short term deals this offseason anyway. So it's it's a bit different it might be i guess a bit of a saturated concept but i i love it i i love that these teams that are in the position to make these moves are making them because um like i obviously i wouldn't construct your whole offseason off taking these risks and not saying ottawa is but signing galchenyuk for a one-year deal for for that amount of money i think i think that's great because if it if it pays off ottawa is in a position money wise to pay him if they want, if they don't want to, then he's gone. I, I think it makes total sense. I think Ottawa's in, in a perfect spot in their, in their up and coming cycle to, to do something like that. One that probably doesn't make as much sense was the other forward acquisition they made for the bottom six. That was Austin Watson. They brought him in from the Nashville Predators. You know, unlike Galchenyuk, he's not exactly here short term. He is signed three more years at one and a half million dollars a year. Derek, Try and make sense of the Austin Watson one for me because I've I think I've been trying to do it since they made the trade and I, I still can't seem to think of why exactly they brought in Austin Watson and what he might be able to offer the team. Yeah, I think it it if you're trying to sell if you're trying to sell the fan base on it, I guess it goes with the hard to play against mentality uh, that they're trying to to develop. But um, kind of my take on it is that uh, skill is also hard to play against and probably harder to play against. So, uh, so yeah, I wasn't a huge fan of the Austin Watson thing. Um, hopefully he can prove us all wrong and be something a little bit more than uh, Scott Saverin maybe, but, uh, but I don't really have high hopes for that. Uh, I didn't like the deal myself. So hard. To yeah, sell. no, that's, that's all we need is another Scott Saverin. Although if he were to score on the Toronto Maple Leafs and, slide across the ice as Scott Saverin did. That would be pretty cool to see. Um, Patrick, you know, given some of the similarities between the things the Senators are doing now and Montreal did in the past, loading up on bigger, heavier guys in the bottom six, do do you see this being a concern for Ottawa in a couple of years? I mean, look, this is just what GMs do for whatever reason. They want to get a role player and you and I and Luke, we've talked endlessly about role players and grit players. It's just to shake it up. Um, obviously, the term is somewhat concerning, but the cap hit sort of forgives it. Um, but GMs do this constantly. They like to recycle, you know, third and fourth liners who are gritty in the bottom six. Maybe you get a feel for it. And every once in a while, one works out for Montreal. Nate Thompson ended up working out last season, and he was very solid as their fourth line center. So maybe, maybe it's just a change of scenery for them. Um, if it sort of ties into their draft mindset, which I think we've sort of hinted at that it kind of does in getting players who are harder to play against rather than getting players who are purely skilled, then it becomes concerning. But again, 
I think getting Dadnov there, getting Tim Stutzel, getting Jake Sanderson, who I think is really solid. Um, I think it shows that they're not completely invested in that mindset and they still can sort of recognize the difference between the two, which I hope they would. Um, but if they start doing that constantly, then it becomes cause for concern. And even someone like Bergevin, who did it notoriously a couple of years ago, it seems like he sort of learned from his mistakes and is focusing more on skill lately. So I don't think it's too concerning uh, yet, at least. All right. Well, speaking of lack of skill, we just got to look towards the Senators right defense, uh, right side of the defense right now, because, you know, it doesn't look like there's going to be a whole lot of skill coming from there next year. Right now under contract, they've got Josh Brown, Eric Goodbranson, another trade acquisition and Nikita Zaitsev holding down that right D spot. You know, personally, Josh Brown was somebody I was pretty intrigued about 25 years old. He's a bit older of a guy in terms of prospects, but you know, doesn't have a large sample size in the national hockey league and has posted some solid defensive numbers in his time there. But Jacob, I'll leave this over to you. Looking at the Sens' right D on paper right now, is that a cause for concern at all, given the good young puck movers that they have on the left side in Shabbat, Brandstrom, Will Lannan? I think for sure it's definitely a question we had, and I, I wrote about it in one of my recent articles, and I feel that uh, definitely um, Pierre Dorn, I, I think Pierre Dorn is trying to give the Senators as many options as possible to move up and down lineup. Well, I think that Will Allen is going to definitely get a look in the NHL. I think there's there's definitely some some players who aren't necessarily ready for the NHL yet, and that's why I think uh, Dorn acquired guys like uh, Good Branson, um, Josh Brown, and, and guys like that as a stopgap option. I think, honestly, that uh, I think the year will start off with uh, with us. Uh, with pairing up Chabot with uh, Josh Brown. Uh, who knows? It might be another Dylan Mello situation where he, uh, I'm not going to say overperformance, but uh, he really uh, grew in his own with uh, with Chabot and Dumelo. And I think it's uh, Josh Brown has the potential to have that type of season besides Chabot. Daniel, just looking at it on paper, is Josh Brown the Mark Mathot, Eric Carlson type deal with Thomas Chabot? Uh, I'd hope so. That'd be great. Uh I don't know. You can't say that as of now, but uh, if Shabbat, I think it's more about Shabbat becoming near as Carlson because to Carlson's point, like anybody could have played with Carlson and they would have looked fine. He torn, turned Philip Kuba into like a 45 point, like plus 50 during his Norris year or something. So uh, if Brown can just do his job and play defense, like it could work. Yeah, for sure. I, I'm okay with the Josh Brown trade. Yeah, no, I, I'm pretty okay with anything that gets Shabbat away from Zaitsev again because, you know, admittedly at times last year it was painful to watch those two, uh, you know, Thomas Shabbat probably spending a bit too much time in his own zone. We need somebody that can help free him up, especially if the Senators are going to take another step forward next year. Um, look, at the grand scheme of these things, all these acquisitions, you know, we, we've talked about the mindset and, you know, how it's a little bit short-sighted and stuff like that and how there's a bit of risk here involved when you're bringing in uh, not-skilled guys. So we're going to have to see how it plays out for Ottawa. But one of the more interesting acquisitions, I think it's the most interesting one in a long time that Ottawa's made, was bringing in Matt Murray from the Pittsburgh Penguins. Uh, you know, obviously, Senators fans know him well from his time with the Penguins. He was the goalie in net during that unfortunate Game 7 loss to Pittsburgh in 2017. He is now the only player in that locker room that was a part of that series, which is kind of unbelievable to think of. Derek, do you see Matt Murray as the goalie of the future for the Ottawa Senators? You know, given the fact that he did have a very, very off year last year, and he's had some, he's, he's been about 50-50 in the NHL, but are you confident that he can be the goalie of the future and be the one that takes the Senators to the playoffs when they're ready? Um, 
I don't know if I'm 100% confident in that today. Um, I hope I have a different answer at the end of next year, but um, but I don't want to sit here right now and say that, yeah, Matt Murray is the guy of the future. Uh, but with the contract they gave him, uh, hopefully, <laughs> that's a, a it's a pretty steep contract. Um, I like Matt Murray personally. Um, I play a little goalie myself, so I do watch goalies from a more more of a technical aspect, and I do like uh, the way that Matt Murray plays. I think he's pretty sound in his positioning. Um, I think his struggles are widely known, and it's high glove. Um, and I think teams know that. So he knows that as well. And that's an area that he has to improve on. Um, so I'm, I'm moderately concerned, but I'm also excited. I think we paid a, a pretty low price to get someone who at 26 years old has already won two Stanley Cups. Um, so I'm excited to see what Matt Murray can do, but I'm cautiously optimistic. Yeah, no, I think I, that's something I definitely see. It's, there is a bit of risk there, but you want to be cautiously optimistic given the fact that he does have two Stanley Cups to his name at only 26 years old. And it's also really good to know that you're a goalie because Patrick, Luke, and I play hockey down together at Ryerson. And uh, <laughs> sometimes we are in need of a goaltender from time to time. So we'll make sure we call you up uh, when that happens. Uh, some other offseason business the Senators got to was they, they've locked up a few of their core guys, their RFAs. Um, Connor Brown is somebody that they've wanted to keep around and they made that known. They finally did lock him up just hours before arbitration to a three-year deal. It's paying him 3.6 million a year, Chris Tierney, two years, three and a half million dollars a year. Uh, Jacob, are these guys that you see sticking around in Ottawa for a long time, or is this just a stop gap between now and when the kids are ready? So I feel, I feel definitely Connor Brown is definitely going to be part of the core looking forward. I think right now, right now he's a top six player in Ottawa, but ideally he'd be a third line uh, left right winger behind uh, X player and uh, could be Dadanoff and uh, Batterson on the right side. When it comes to Chris Tierney, I think Chris Tierney is more of a stopgap option option that might be exposed in a Seattle expansion draft. I feel that's a situation for Chris Tierney. When it comes to Nick Paul, Honestly, I don't know. I want him to play for Ottawa. I don't know how to feel about him yet, though. I've only, I, I'm, I don't know too much about his game personally. Yeah, he's been somebody I've rooted for for a long time. And just because I think that Jason Spezza trade has always hung over Nick Paul specifically. So you always, I, I've always hoped for the best for him because it seems like there was a lot of expectation on him, especially back in 2014, 2015, fresh off that trade when Spezza was doing well in Dallas. It put pressure on Nick Paul, and you could see that sometimes in the expectation of the Senators fan base. So that's definitely somebody I hope finds his game. Uh, Daniel, wh what are your thoughts on Chris Brown and Chris Tierney? Um, I, I think the same way Jacob does. I think Connor Brown is a potential candidate for the third line when the Senators are ready to for their unparalleled success. Uh and uh, for Chris Tierney, I just really can't see him fitting in the plans after his two years or up. Either they trade him where he goes to uh, Seattle. Because, uh, I don't know, he doesn't bring much upside in third line. We're so deep at center that ideally would hopefully be really Greg's spot. Uh, I just can't see Tierney working out. I don't mind him as a player, but I just don't think he's in the plans after two years, at least. Luke, I'll finish this one up with you. I keep going back to the comparison, I guess, with the Canucks because it's the recently rebuild a team now is looking on the upswing versus a team that is in a rebuild and hopefully soon on the upswing. Uh, given what the senators have done with some of these guys, their RFAs, you know, locking them up to deals that aren't too bad in terms of how long the deals are. Is that something that you think is a positive because you look at the Canucks now and sometimes, you know, they they've had to make conscious decisions with the cap now because they do have 
a lot of guys uh, that are in their bottom six locked up on term. Is this a smart move by Pierre Dorian to keep those deals in the two to three year range? Especially now, I think so. Um, And maybe that, well, no, that probably did have something to do with it, right? What's going on right now? What's going on with the cap right now? Regardless, with the position Ottawa's in, I mean, there's with with these short-term two, three-year deals, there's kind of only two outcomes, right? Same thing, and like I said with... um, whoever we were talking about earlier, but you know, if, if they perform well over two years and like maybe they deserve more money, you either give it to them or you don't. And, and you have that space to, to make other decisions. Whereas if you do sign them to say a six year by $6 million deal, just throwing out numbers and they underperform over that term, like it's it's pretty clear for everyone involved that's that's not a good thing except for the guy getting six million dollars but yeah i think i think this is it's extremely smart from ottawa's perspective especially for a team that is just climbing out of the basement you sign these guys to to see how they can perform with with the team that you're you're finally putting together to to make a push for the playoffs and in two three years when you're there you make the decision, you know, who, who's going to stay, where are we going to reshape this? So I, I think these, these small, you know, two by 1.35, two by 3.5. I think, I think that's exactly the way to go. Well, if I had to guess who the six by six you were referring to was there, I I'm going to guess it was Louis Erickson. Uh, I don't know that I'm, I'm really glad the senators <laughs> didn't go for one of those in the free agent market, but I guess we'll transition now more into a state of the franchise type look as we, as we're hurrying up towards the end of the show. Um, you know, from what we've talked about here in terms of just this offseason, we've really just focused on the year 2020 and what the Senators have done in terms of the draft and free agency. There's a lot, there is a lot of good, there's a lot of bad, but way more than both. There's a lot of questionable 50-50 stuff with the Senators right now. Derek, I'll start with you. How confident are you in the Ottawa Senators franchise right now in terms of drafting, scouting, trading, and their management in general, and what comes along with that? Are you confident that they've done a good job up to this point with this rebuild? And are you confident that this year, what they've done has helped the rebuild? I think it's, I I hate to not answer these questions with something solid. I think it's so early that it's really hard to tell. I like I definitely like some of the moves that they've made. Um, I don't kind of hate the philosophy of being hard to play against. If you're hard to play against combined with skill, like I think we've seen teams like St. Louis go all the way and win the cup and Tampa Bay this year added some grittier guys to help them get over the top. Um, In terms of scouting and drafting, um, I still think, you know, if we're being realistic, we're probably near the bottom of the league, um, again, from those financial constraints. But with the picks that they've had, um, I haven't minded what they've done. I mean, some of them have, have already started to pan out. Um, I think Trent Mann, um, if there's anyone I'm kind of most confident in within the organization, I would probably say Trent Mann at this point. Um, I think he has a nice calming influence, uh, especially when he speaks to the media, as opposed to someone like Melnick, for sure, and someone like Pierre Dorian, um, who kind of just throws things out there sometimes, like Orbietsky will be a senator for life or, you know, various other things. But, uh, but Trent Mann is a guy that, uh, that I kind of like there. So um, 
again, I'm kind of on the fence. I, I'm, I'm not going to go so far as to say that I'm 100% confident in it when I think it's premature. Jacob, same question for you. Are you confident in Senators management? I think that uh, Derek, uh, Derek really hit the hit the needle with a the hammer there. I think it's definitely the Sens have done some really good moves and some questionable moves at too. And I feel that um, we are, are we are definitely on a trend upwards, but like um, there's going to be hiccups along the way. I'm a fan of what uh, Duran has done so far, but then again, every GM has their hiccups here and there. For example, I think the first one I can think of is the uh, the uh, the uh, Zib- trade. I think that was uh, I think I believe that was one of Duran's uh, first. That trade. was his first trade. That was his first trade, yes. And um, that was definitely a big, big hiccup looking at, at it now. But then again, everybody has their hiccups. I think that Dorian, Dorian is a very emotional guy. And sometimes that uh, that uh, that kind of s- scares us Sen fans because sometimes he might, might, might make us think that he might do uh, an impulse move. But at the same time, um, I think he's definitely got a great support cast in Ottawa with Trent Mann and uh, the scouting team, scouting team and definitely a great coaching staff who helps him um, with the day-to-day operations. I think it's definitely on a step upwards. Daniel, the, Jacob just mentioned it right there, the coaching staff. Are you confident in them to mold this group right now, given what you saw last season, the work that they did? Uh to a certain extent, I am. Uh, I noticed when Josh Norris came to the team at the end of the season, he played three games, I think. Uh, DJ Smith was really uh, generous in the ice time he gave him. I think he played on the top line with Kachuk and Bobby Ryan. And he played like 20 minutes a game or something like that. And there are other things like his deployment of Brandstrom that I was a little bit questionable of. So I think it's a question mark. Like, I don't know if DJ is going to be the answer at coach. I guess we'll, we'll find out in the next couple of years. But uh, he doesn't seem afraid to play the kids as much as Guy Boucher was or past coaches. So, uh, yeah, I, I think he easily could be. They're, he made the, They played respectively well with a pretty pretty bad roster last year in some games. They were competitive. So, yeah, I think DJ Smith could be. He could definitely be, yeah. Patrick, from an outside point of view, what does this look like to you with the Senators right now? When do you expect that they will be able to provide some level of competition for the other teams in the Atlantic division? Because I think it's hard for Senators fans to objectively look at it right now, given the fact that this rebuild has felt like a hundred years when it's only been about three, it's hard to look into the future and see where the end of the tunnel is. But with an outside view, where do you think the Senators sit now? I think Look, I don't think it's completely – I don't think they're in a terrible situation. And I say that because I think Pierre Dorian did a really good job at recognizing the situation Ottawa was in, especially at the deadline. He nailed the deadline where I thought other teams – and I'll say Montreal kind of came up short where they sort of played it safe and sort of rode that fence, whereas Pierre Dorian, he recognized the issue. He got rid of uh, certain picks or certain players for picks to recoup as many assets as possible to have a solid draft. And now he, we know that Ottawa is going to rebuild – and they've been very vocal about that. And I think what advantage they have is, and I've said it with Montreal too, very liquid, movable assets. Austin Watson, that's a movable contract. Uh, Nick Paul, Chris Tierney, Connor Brown, but I don't think he's someone they want to get rid of to begin with. Um, and then someone like Eric Branson, who was off next year. I know that's a sort of a struggle to, to pick someone like that up, but um, I don't think it's terrible. I just think this is only the beginning. And while everyone was waiting for the draft to sort of evaluate uh Pierre Dorian as a GM, I think it's what comes after the draft. It, it's, it's about what he does next couple of years, who he adds to surround Tim Stutzel and Brady Kachuk, the supporting pieces, the, the middle six players, the bottom six players, who else he can add to the defense to sort of uh, 
balance it out. I think that that's really the test for Pierre Dorian, but I don't think it's that terrible of a position for Ottawa to be in. And I think um, sort of like Derek said, be cautiously optimistic because I do think there are still a little bit of a short sightedness and shortcomings with Dorian, but overall, I think it's, I think it's okay. Well, it's safe to say, I think I would know the answer if I asked the same question about confidence with regards to ownership. Uh, I'm sure everybody's got a similar sentiment <laughs> when it comes to that. Um, Luke, quickly, as we wrap up here, same question for you. How far do you think the senators are away from being done this rebuild? Well, I think, and kind of jumping on what Patrick said, I think the most important thing to to see in this rebuild is that they're not just they're not just building with these very heavy pieces that might might be a good addition, but you know it can it, it can kind of cement you in place. They're building with very fluid with very fluid assets, and they're you know they're they're kind of they seem like a very dynamically built team. They can they can move quickly if you know need be if like all, all their players they're they're movable players so it seems like a, a very maybe hesitant but very safe and smart rebuild so when they're going to get there who knows I mean I think didn't he say recently I, I think no I think what was the quote 21 they'd be in the playoffs or contenders or something unparalleled I, success 2020 precedent one baby okay so we're almost there so you guys have like a year to go two months really <laughs> yeah according to Mr. Mel like that's uh, that's what we've got well that pretty much does it for all the topics we want to talk about I'll pretty much hand this over to our three guests here Derek I'll go with you first uh any plugs you've got anything you want to promote here while you're on take to take yeah uh nothing more than uh than send shot for myself and twitter uh so at dlee075 on twitter uh, and you can find my stuff on SendShot as well thanks guys daniel same for you um, you can find me on Twitter, uh, at Daniel Bruce 11. And of course I'd like to plug SendShot. Uh, me and Jacob are the editors there and, uh, yeah. So go and follow our stuff. Thanks. Jacob for you. As Daniel mentioned, me and him are both the editors for SendShot. You can find me on Twitter at Jacob Revere. So, uh, and, um, I also like to promote my podcast. It's at talking some sentence. Great guys. And, you know, we've been, I think the SendShot's been doing a great job, uh, covering the Ottawa Senators, especially throughout the pandemic and everything. There's been such a gap of news and we've really felt it when we're doing the show too. Sometimes the content is hard to come by, but I think in terms of Ottawa Senators news, I think Sunshot is definitely getting up there right now, getting some real credibility because everything that's been coming out of there is great lately. And that's a big part of that is because of you three. So thank you guys very much for coming on, talking about the Ottawa Senators. We're definitely going to have you guys on again at some point before the season gets going again, because you know, there's no shortage of Ottawa Senators news these days, it seems. Patrick, I'll throw it to you so you can wrap us up. Yeah, uh, just to wrap up, I want to thank you guys for coming. Like like Nick said, sometimes in the offseason is very hard and we are pressed for content. So the three of you are welcome on the show uh, whenever you'd like. And we'd love to have discussions. And even if it's just outside Ottawa, anything hockey related. Um, as we wrap up here, I do want to remind everyone who is tuning in that this show can be heard on Barn Burner Radio Network on its 122 platforms. Check out all of it on barnburn.ca for all the news and updates. Uh, Jacob, Luke, Daniel, Derek, uh, and Nick. Thank you all for being there and uh, we'll see you next time. Take it easy guys.